you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. Excuse me for a moment. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 2, we find the seven churches in Asia, which we, today we would know as Asia Minor or Turkey, uh, are being addressed. And as we considered the first one, Ephesus, last week, we were at the second one now, and that's uh, the church in the city of Smyrna. And that begins at verse 8 of chapter 2. So there we read, Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. But you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we consider this portion of your Holy Word, we ask you to bless us with your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts and minds. Give us understanding in the Scriptures and speak to us. We pray, Lord God, this day from your Word. And I pray that the words of my mouth... And the meditations, the thoughts of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Christ, who is Lord of the church, is here addressing the church in Smyrna. And as you know, if you have a Bible map in the back of your Bible, you might want to look back and find the one uh, that shows Greece. And then you can find uh, Ephesus. Usually that's listed. A little bit north of Ephesus was the city of Smyrna. Uh, the writer here, John, writes of this, really dictating what the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit is saying to him. And we read of this in Smyrna. It seems like, well, this must have been a poor city and poor people and not too well off. No, that's not the case at all. Okay, The, the church there was afflicted. The city itself was a major city. Some would say it was the major city in Asia Minor. The Romans loved it. Everybody else did, too, because it had a fantastic seaport. It had been built up, and this was a, a bustling commercial city. Uh, there was military there. That, you know, They used it as a stopping-off point to bring in troops. There were merchants that traded there. There was all kinds of things going on. But we find here in Revelation that there was something else there that the world didn't take much notice of, and that was there was a church there. And it was indeed an afflicted group. It was a small church. It was struggling. And so the Lord Jesus Christ addresses, and we saw last week that the angel or the messenger of the church, and I said that we, those are probably, I think we have to say, human beings, not, not celestial beings, when he uses the word angeloi. Uh, he's addressing the, the messengers, or in this case, singular messenger, because the word does mean that in Greek. And also because he calls them to repentance in some of the other uh, seven uh, letters that are, are within this context. 
And the angels that are the heavenly angels are never called to repentance because they're sinless beings. So pretty clearly he's talking here to people. He's talking to the, the probably the pastor or teaching elder or possibly just a messenger that had been sent to John while he was on Patmos, the island when he was in exile, to take back to the churches. But uh, we understand that to mean to the messenger of or from the church of the Smyrnians, literally, okay? It was the, it was from their church. And the word of can also mean from in, in the Greek uh, language. That idea, you know, like we would say the man of La Mancha, he's from La Mancha, okay? So this is a messenger from the church of the Smyrnians. Right. So he tells John, this is an appearance, commands him, here's what you're to write. Thus says the first and the last, who became dead, literally, and then became alive or and came back to life. Christ lets him know who he is. He says, and I'm reading just a literal translation from the Greek. He says, I perceive thy work, singular, and the trouble and the poverty. He says, but thou art rich. And the blasphemy, the word blasphemy means slander, evil speaking. And the blasphemy of those who are claiming themselves to be Jews and are not, but rather they are a synagogue of Satan. Tells them then, fear nothing of the things thou art about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into jail. Okay, prison or jail. So uh, that you may be tested and you shall have trouble for 10 days. Then he commands them, directs them, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And then the promise, the one who has an ear to hear, actually a command, the one who has an ear to hear must hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Then the promise, the one who, literally, the one who is overcoming shall not be harmed by the second death. So the church is in Smyrna and Philadelphia. Smyrna here in this section, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Philadelphia is addressed in chapter 3 at verse 7 through 13. Uh, they are the only two churches in these among these seven churches that receive no criticism. The Lord had nothing bad to say about them. He just commends them. He lets them know they're going to go through some trials and troubles, and they were both considered poor churches, uh, and they were afflicted. They were both poor, afflicted, and persecuted, yet precious to the Lord Jesus Christ, though despised or ignored by the world. I mentioned before uh, about 50, 60 years, actually 67 AD. So that would have been about 70 years after this was written. Uh, the uh, Bishop of Smyrna was Polycarp. He was like the chief pastor. They weren't diocesan bishops over huge ge geographical areas. He was the pastor in that city and he was martyred. If you remember, I told you they, um, it's written down. It's actually called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. If you ever want to Google that and read it, it's rather interesting. Um, and it was written down right after it happened. It's pretty accurate history. But he died for the faith there. He was persecuted. He was uh, 86 years old, or actually he might have been older because he said he'd served the Lord for 86 years. And the Lord had done him no harm. And so when the Roman governor kept asking him to he said, just say Caesar is Lord. And that's literally what was going on back in those days. Say Caesar is Lord, offer some incense to his image, renounce the Christians, and then you can go home. I, we don't want to, you're an old man. And he said, nope, so I'm not going to do it. And so finally, he, uh, the emperor or the governor said, speak, well, you know, what do you have to say for yourself? He said, I'll tell you right now, since you want to know plainly. And he said this in front of a stadium filled with hundreds of people, if not thousands. Because Smyrna, as I say, it was a big city, and the Jewish population there was calling for his death. They wanted him dead. Uh, the pagans wanted him dead 
for no other reason that he loved Jesus, but he helped people. He was kind. Uh, the people that arrested him even were like, why are they going after this fellow? He's a nice old gentleman. Um, but finally told him, he said, if you really want to know here, I'll tell you all. He said, I'm a Christian. That's, that's why I'm here. He said, I'm a Christian. He said, I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So they got more and more frustrated. They ended up uh, burning him at the stake there that day. And finally, you know, when they when the governor kept questioning him, finally he told him, he said, this is Polycarp. It's not humorous in one sense, but you just see this idea of victory in his life. He finally told the governor, quit questioning me. He said, just get on with it. He said, we all know why I'm here. You all know what you want done. He said, I'm a Christian. I'm not going to renounce Christ. That's when he said, I've served him for 86 years, and he's done me no harm. He said, how then can I renounce my Lord? And so they said, okay. So they put him to death. That was in Smyrna. That was in this city. And so you can be sure Polycarp had read that. Some believe because of Polycarp's age that he was perhaps a young man uh, or at least a young child in Smyrna when they received this letter from John. Um, history tells us that Polycarp actually had been a disciple of the Apostle John. Polycarp was a young man. John was getting up there in, in years. But John had taught him the gospel, and he went on to become a leader in the church. So we may know actually one person named in history by name who actually heard this epistle when it first came. You know, when the ink was barely dry on it, he got it from, from John. So... The church there, it went on to continue to be an afflicted church, but they persevered. So in verse 8, the congregation is addressed through its messenger, and then the Lord Jesus Christ identifies himself. And this is important. Each one of these letters has a, a description of Christ in it. And in this one, Jesus says, uh, thus says the first and the last, who literally, you could say, who became dead, he died, and came alive. He reminds him of that. Why is that important? Well, this was a church getting ready to be persecuted. He said, the devil's about to throw some of you into jail, and you're going to have tribulation or trouble for 10 days. Somebody that might have been prophetic, a symbol for 10 years, but whatever it was, it was, a, you know, 10 days. It can be a long period, but it's not that long. Okay, so the Lord's telling him, you're going to have some rough times. Um, it's going to come from the devil. But you need to remember, I'm the first and the last Christ is in control. He's the sovereign. He's in sovereign control over all the events and persons of history from start to finish. He says uh, he's the one who became dead and lived, lived again and always. In Romans 6, 9, Paul said, uh, Christ being raised from the dead dies no more. And so Christ is raised never to die again. He's conquered death, Christ has, both for himself and his people. Those who are killed for their faithfulness to Christ need not fear Verse 9, he tells us again that he perceived or knew their works. He says, I know thy works. The word know is oida. It means perceive. Uh, that is, you, you see something, you know it, and you understand what it is. That's what this is. So Christ actually doesn't just see what's going on. He perceives and understands it for what it really is. Sometimes when we don't. So he says, I perceive your works, your troubles or tribulation, and your poverty. But then he reminds it, but you're really rich. And the slander or the blasphemy of those claiming to be in covenant with God, who said they were Jews. Paul in Romans chapter 2 describes a true Jew. He said the true Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly. He said circumcision is that of the heart. So Paul said a, a, a real true child of God is what he's describing, is not one who has a blood lineage uh, 
in the tribe of Judah. It's someone who actually has the spirit of God in them, who's had a work of grace done. <clears throat> Christ recognized the Jews at that time. They claimed to be God's people, but they weren't. There's an interesting thing happened in the Roman Empire. And this is not an anti-Semitic statement, okay? I support Israel. I want to see the Jewish people saved and blessed and prospered. <clears throat> but I will say this. They really, as we would say in a colloquial statement, they really shot themselves in the foot. In the early church, they went out of their way to, to let the Romans know these Christians are not part of Judaism. Originally, if you remember when Gallio heard Paul and they brought accusations against him, he said, this is a Jewish matter. So he dismissed it. The Jews went out of their way to make sure that the Romans understood Christianity and Judaism are not the same thing. These Christians are not part of the Jewish religion. Well, the Jews had protection under Roman law. And they were recognized, you know, Roman soldiers, if you were a Jew, uh, the Sabbath day, you got to rest for the most part unless you were in battle. They were given preferences that, you know, there was all kinds of nice things done for them. They were persecuted at times, but for the most part, the Jews were, it was considered what they call a religio licita. It was a, a licensed or a legitimate religion, so it was not under persecution. By having the Christians not be under that, that meant the Christians were an illegal religion, and that's why they were persecuted. And so the Jews were very much forward in pressing persecution on the Christians. Problem is... Around 324, the Roman emperor, Constantine, became a Christian. And then Christ, he put a stop to persecution in the empire for religious reasons, and he accepted Christianity. Later, Theodosian, a later emperor, about a generation later, he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman empire, which was a mistake because in order to keep your government job, you had to get baptized and start going to church. And so that filled the churches with paganism, because these were not real people, or they were not people who really had had a work of grace done. Many of them, they were just simply wanting to keep their jobs, and they had to, quote, become Christians. So they flooded the church. Right after that, you start, idolatry starts coming in, prayers to the saints, all the garbage that corrupted the middle, medieval church. But the one bad thing that the Jews had done, they convinced the Romans that Christianity was not Judaism or under Judaism, so suddenly, Christianity was the protected religion, and the Jews were considered, particularly after 70 AD and then later 120 AD in the Bar Kokhba revolt, the Jews really fell into disfavor with the Romans. And but then when they tried to say, well, you know, we're, we're, we're you know, we're kind of a, you know, Christianity's related to us, and the Roman government said, no, they're not. You've gone out of your way to prove that. We believed you. So they lost their protected status. So it's interesting because, you know, as they say, you reap what you sow, they learn. By the way, that doesn't justify any persecution of Jewish people or anything, okay? Uh, the Bible tells us we're to treat them with kindness, you know, and uh, we see how that's failed to be done so many times and the hardness that's there. But anyway, these people claim to be Jews, but Jesus knew that they weren't, okay? And that is in their hearts. He knows who his true people are. And he says they're actually a synagogue of Satan. A synagogue means brought together. He said they're, they're a synagogue of Satan. They're not worshiping God because they've rejected his Messiah. And they're slanderers. Note that. The word, you know, he says the devil is going to have some of you get cast into prison or into jail. Well, the devil uses slander. And the word diabolos in Greek means literally that, a slanderer. When Paul wrote to the uh, Timothy and told him that the older women, uh, they were not to be 
slanderers, literally, it's they weren't to be devils, diaboloi. Um, he tells Timothy, that, you know, to avoid slander. That's what that word means. The devil is a slanderer. And we'll consider that in a minute. But um, we recognize the, the weapons that he uses. So men should be defined not by their claims, but by their works. The fiercest persecutors of God's people throughout history have been those who loudly claimed they were the true church or the true people of God, when in fact, they were the complete enemies to God and Christ. Even the very Antichrist himself claims to be the vicar of Christ on earth, while exalting himself as though he were God. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4, Paul warns about the man of sin. He says he sits in the temple of God, the naos, meaning the sanctuary. That's the word used to describe the church. You are the temple of the living God. He sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God and when he sits, when he speaks, and there's the phrase when he speaks ex cathedra, from the chair, supposedly. You know, when the Bishop of Rome speaks from the chair of St. Peter, it's considered to be the voice of God on earth. An absolute literal fulfillment of what Paul predicted. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Read it. Um, as some have said, if the Pope is not the Antichrist, that is the succession of popes in history, the real one's going to have to go train under him because he's put more people into hell than any end-time Antichrist ever could, uh, simply by the false doctrines of leading people away from Christ. So much for the ecumenicalism, okay? Um, so here, though, we see that those who claim to be God's people aren't often. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. Verse 10, we see that here we're there he tells them, no, don't, to be, don't be afraid. Notice, before he tells them what's going to happen to them, he says, don't be afraid. Parents, if you have older children, once in a while, we get a, we get a call. And, you know, if, if Seth or Noah would say, Mom, Dad, don't worry. Everyone's okay. But I got to tell you, like, what's going on? Then we find out there was a fender bender or something like that. But if it starts off, everything's okay. It's like, yeah, all right. Well, I'm still going to we're on the edge of the chair until we find out what's going on. So that's always nice. Here's what Jesus does. This is a church getting ready to get slammed with heavy-handed persecution. But he first starts off and says, don't be afraid. Fear not. Then he tells them what's going to happen. Okay, Don't be afraid of the things you're about to suffer. He said, behold, the devil literally is about to throw you. The word cast is throw, ballo. Uh, we get the word ball, actually. Okay, He's getting ready to throw uh, some of you uh, into prison so that you can be tested or tried uh, and have tribulation for 10 days. And he says, uh, be faithful unto death. In other words, if it leads to you having to die for the faith, be faithful unto death. He says, I will give to you the crown of life. And the word crown there is the word uh, Stephanos, and it means a victor's crown, the victor's garland. And there's another word for crown, diadem, a diadem that is referred to kings, royal crowns. This is a crown given to victors. And so Christ says, I'll give you that. So he tells them, don't be afraid. In the face of violence and powerful opposition, Christ bids his people to fear nothing that the enemy may do to them. Fear none of those things which you are about to suffer. Nothing can come to us that Christ isn't aware of and sovereign over. Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And he names off pretty much everything. He said, none of those things can separate us from the love of God. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Jesus said, don't be afraid of men. Have your fear of God. In John 16, 2, Jesus said, they shall put you out of the synagogues, and speaking to the apostles. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. The time's coming when the person that kills you is thinking he's doing something that's pleasing to God. That's how twisted this world is and how messed up religious people can get when they don't follow the Bible. The Smyrnans were about to undergo a fiery time of persecution for 10 days. Long, but not too long. Note this. They were going to be tested, but not forsaken. Paul said in Rome, said rather 2 Corinthians 4.9, referring to the things he'd gone through. He said, cast down, we've been cast down, but not forsaken. When the Christian's at his lowest, he finds there's Christ right there with him. Some from among them were going to be thrown into jail because of the slander that, that was out and about, that was being perpetrated by the, by the Jews and pagans. Some of the Christians may soon die, but Christ calls them to remain faithful unto death because he's the one who died and rose again. In Revelation chapter 12, this book, verses 10 and 11, we, Paul, uh, John writes and says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives, literally their souls, who they were. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Those are the ones that are with Christ. They overcame him, note, by the blood of the Lamb. They trusted fully in Christ. Christ had redeemed them. And by the word of their testimony, they wouldn't shut up. Couldn't get them to be quiet. They kept talking about Jesus and his goodness and glory. And it cost them their lives, but they loved Jesus more than their own lives. And so they will receive that crown of life. Christ promises the victor's garland crown to those who are faithful unto death. For the Christian, death is only a temporary condition. Hence, it's sometimes likened unto being asleep. Paul talks about those who sleep in Christ. Because when Christ returns, we will be awakened at the resurrection unto life. Life is the permanent condition of the Christian. Jesus said, he, that hears, he who believes my word, wait a minute, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me, it's John 5, 24. He who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment or condemnation, but has already passed out of death into life. So life is the permanent condition of the Christian. You know, when people, some people say, oh, you can lose your salvation. No, not if you had it. The definition of eternal life means that it's not temporary. You can't be alive eternally for a little while. Okay, It's eternal. That's what God has given you. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, as Paul said. Our physical bodies sleep in the earth at death until the last day resurrection. But at death, we ourselves pass into the presence of the Lord. That is your spirit, your soul. You enter into the Lord's presence. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's no such thing as soul sleep in Scripture. Some say when you die, you're unconscious or you just cease to exist or some foolishness like that. It's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus told the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. And the man died that day, but he was with Jesus in paradise. In verse 11, he calls him, he says, The one having an ear must hear. That's an imperative. 
what the Spirit is saying to the churches, to the seven churches in Asia and all other churches everywhere, including Grace Presbyterian Church, whatever church you're in. So he says, listen. Then he says, the victor, he who overcomes, the one, literally the one who is overcoming. It's a present participle. That means the action is viewed as going on right now and it's continuing. So it's not just a one-time victory. It's not something at the end. It's got to be going on right now. The victor will not be harmed. That is, this, by the way, he uses the strongest negative in the Greek language to say this. The victor, the one who is overcoming, will in no way whatsoever. We probably want to add an anyhow or any way. It's not going to happen to be harmed by the second death. It's no way going to happen to the one who overcomes. So how do they overcome? By the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives unto the death. They're safe from the second death. The word translated harmed is adikethe. And that means the it has with it the idea of injustice. The victor will not be treated unjustly at the final judgment because the blood and righteousness of Christ, who will be the judge on that day, is imputed to them and reckoned as theirs. Their, you know, that sacrifice is their own. It saved them. And he himself will make sure that they are secured. He will secure his on uh, in full justification on that day. The one who died for you is going to be your judge. Okay, You'll give an account of yourself before Jesus. It's not to see if you're worthy to enter into heaven. That was settled at the cross. He alone is worthy, but he, he's worthy for us. Those who by faith alone have found the victory in Christ will be received by their Savior into glory. The dreadful eternal punishment of the second death, the lake of fire that's described in the latter chapters of this book, will have no claim in justice upon them. If hell cries out for you, it's going to be an empty plea because your sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how John started this book. Remember, and to him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. So on the day of judgment, when you're there, you'll give an account of yourself to Christ for the deeds done in the body, and you'll receive a reward for things done, whether good or bad, it says. But whether or not you're worthy to enter into heaven, that's already settled. Christ is worthy, and he is the one that has saved you. So if death makes a claim, if Satan makes a claim, if whatever makes a claim against you, it'll fall flat because there's no basis in justice for that claim because your sins have been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. So application, what does all this mean to us? Well, a few things we can take away from this here in the next few moments. We need in the midst of our troubles to remember who Jesus Christ is. Remember, he reminds them who he is. I am the first and the last. I'm he who became dead and lived. Uh, we need to know who Jesus is and what he has done and is doing for us. As he begins each of these seven letters to the churches of Asia by reminding them about who he is, so we also should remind ourselves of the same each morning. Well, whenever you get up, when you're awake, remind yourself, I'm in Jesus' hands, and he's sovereign. He's the first and the last. He died, and he's alive now, and he's alive for me, and he intercedes for me. Here he reminded the church in Smyrna that he is the first and the last. He began the creation. He's the first fruits from the dead in the resurrection. And he will bring all things to their predestined and appointed conclusions. He is sovereign over all the events of time and eternity. He was dead and lived again. He conquered death. He defeated it by removing its claims against us. 
he had our sins imputed to him. And in his death, he because he really did pay for them when he suffered hell on the cross, justice was satisfied. So death had no claim against him. What happened on the third day? He rose from the dead. Death had no claim. That's why the resurrection is an integral part of the preaching of the gospel. Christ is risen from the dead. Sin has no claim upon him because he took away our sins. Death has no claim upon him because, remember, the wages of sin is what? Death. Well, why did Christ rise again? Because he paid the penalty that we owed. And because he is risen, we also will be raised. You're raised now when the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to you and your, your regeneration being born again. So death has no claim against us. Christ conquered death for us. He's alive forevermore. So you need not be afraid. The last enemy we're told that Christ is going to destroy at the resurrection is death. That's in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. And so we need fear no foe. You know, there's a phrase, Christus, Christus victor, Christ the victor. Uh, David said in Psalm 56, 3, we read it a few moments ago, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Uh, literally, it's a hope in you or trust in you. It's a faithful, that hope and faith that are kind of looked at in the same way. Um, literally, it's in the day I am afraid or when I am afraid. But the, the Hebrew has the word day in it. We just translate it a little bit idiomatically in our English Bibles. The day I am afraid, I will trust or hope upon you. Secondly, in the kingdom of Christ, there are many rich, poor men. And there's quite a few poor rich men, too, from time to time. If God's given you wealth, don't let it get in the way of your spiritual growth. Okay, uh, Money can blind. Jesus warned about the deceitfulness of riches. And we need to recognize that. Your life doesn't consist of the things that you have. What you do have, as Paul said, God has given us all things richly to enjoy. So give God thanks and enjoy it. It's his gift to you. But don't confuse the gift with the giver. Okay, You can live without all the stuff you have. Okay, But you can't live without Jesus. He gave it to you. And as member Job, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God bless him. Now, Job had his wealth and prosperity restored to him in this life. Many of us say, oh, you know, I'm just going to have to wait till the Lord comes. Paul said, your treasure is hidden with Christ. Jesus said, lay up treasures in heaven where moth can't corrupt and thieves don't break through and steal. You have an eternal inheritance. So be a, if you have to be poor, be a rich poor man. Be rich spiritually. Thirdly, the enemy of Christ, the enemies of Christ, often claim for themselves that they are the true people of God or the true church, when in fact they are his chief enemies and the persecutors of Christ's flock. So how do you know you're in the true church? Okay, Everybody claims to be the true church. Well, Jesus gave us a real simple test in Matthew chapter 7. He said you'll know them by their fruits. That's how you can tell. He's talking about false prophets in that context. Okay, you'll know them by their fruits. Jesus knew who they were. We need to recognize, okay, what's their fruit? You see a church that's persecuting or a church that's tolerating immorality and wickedness or promoting it. You need to steer clear of that, okay? The true people of God are often afflicted. We read in this, you know, I don't read any, Christ didn't write and say, you know, you Smyrnans, you're having a rough time. I'd suggest you guys just, you know, quit going to church and avoid the problem, okay? Didn't say that. They're a church. Note that. It's corporate. Ecclesia, called out assembly. They're together. We're in covenant with one another. If you remember, you took vows before God, okay? If you have children that have been baptized, they, you took vows for them, okay? 
So we keep those vows and we pray for each other and we love each other and we persevere. That's what a church is. Okay. Today, people go to church like they, you know, there used to be Kmart and then there's Walmart and Target. That's where people go to church nowadays. Okay. Well, I get more there. This is, they're discounted there, you know. Um, so people are consumer oriented because they're not looking to present themselves to God. They're looking to see what, what do I get out of it? What's he got for me? Now, granted, if the words are being preached, you should get something out of it. Okay. But so often people are looking for programs and all kinds of things. You read your Bible. What's the, how does the Bible describe a church? That's what we need to aim at. And by the way, we're far from perfect. Okay. So don't think I'm praising us here. Okay. We got a lot of work to do. But the point is, is that we need to stay together as a congregation, pray for each other. Paul said to the Philippians, and nothing be terrified by your adversaries which is to them an evident token of perdition. That is when they're persecuting you and you're not afraid of them, that's sending them a message that they're on their way to hell if they don't repent. It, to them, it's an evident token of their perdition, but of you of salvation and that of God. Suffering for the cause of Christ is to be expected. A crossless Christianity is not Christianity at all. Jesus said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. The rich young ruler, when he turned away, became sad. You know, in the, in the Greek, the last word Jesus said to him when he said, you know, give your wealth to the poor, because that young man was covetous of his own possessions. He says, and literally it's, and come follow me, having taken up the cross. And it says, at this word, he became sorrowful. He could listen to everything up to that point. When he heard the word cross, that meant shame. That meant to be considered one of the most vilest criminals on the earth. The crucifixion was reserved for horrible people. He turned away. Well, Paul says, don't be afraid. Jesus says, don't be afraid. In the English Bible, the phrase, fear not, 63 times God tells us in Scripture, tells his people, don't be afraid. Fifthly, Christ gives full faithfulness to his saints. He's the one that makes you faithful. And then he generously rewards his own gifts in you. That's our Savior. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He himself will bestow the victor's garland upon his battle-born, battle-wearied child. Number six, finally, we must have no other goal before our eyes than complete victory for the cause of Christ. This is maybe the most important thing we can take from this. We must have no other goal before our eyes than complete victory for the cause of Christ. Could you imagine if, if any of you who are students of history, and now we have to talk about it that way because we're getting away from it time-wise. Could you imagine if in World War II the Allies said, well, maybe we should try to have a negotiated peace with the Nazis. We'll let them keep Germany, Poland, most of France. And we'll, we'll, we'll say, if you guys you know, just behave yourselves, We'll all get along and you can do your Nazi stuff inside your own country, but we're not going to, you know, we're not going to bother you anymore. We want to just get along and not have any problems. That would be insanity. Anybody that knew what was going on in World War II, the aggression, the brutality, the murders, the butchery, all the things that were going on because of Nazi Germany. Nobody in their right mind among the allied forces were thinking, yeah, we could maybe get a negotiated peace. They were like, we're going to stamp this built out of the world. We're going to get rid of Nazism. Fascism is going to die. And that's what they aimed at. And that's what they got. 
They destroyed Hitler's regime. And every place where fascism showed its ugly face, it was dealt with. The world, the flesh, and the devil is not your friend. The idea of a negotiated peace with the world, like, well, I'll just keep my mouth shut because I don't want to lose friends or it might affect my income or something like that. Or I'm comfortable. You know, that's probably the most dangerous place a Christian can get. You need to be comfortable. God wants you to have comfort in your life. But if you're comfortable in sin, you're in, you're in a heap of trouble. If you're comfortable about the stuff going on in our culture, the sodomy, the you know, all the trans garbage going on and being promoted in our schools, okay, I'm considered now an evildoer. I just spoke out against it, okay? Yeah, that stuff is wrong. Homosexuality is a sin. It'll put you into hell. Same way as fornication will, okay? Any, any sexual sin outside of marriage is a damnable sin. But our society has given over to it. We see that. Yeah, it's like, well, you know, if I just keep my mouth shut, I don't have to worry about getting people, you know, getting on their bad side. All right. Well, in our culture, we can't do that. We have to speak up. That's why the early Christians were often put to death because they said, hey, you know, the worship you guys give to your gods, the immorality going on in the temples, of, you know, of your goddesses and stuff. That's wickedness. That's going to put you guys into hell. He was, how dare you attack our sacred traditions? And they went after them. But we need to also say, that, you know what? We're not going to have a negotiated peace with our own comfort. We need to pray more. We need to read our Bibles more. We need to start turning away from stuff that's not good, okay? Uh, television programs that, you know, promote immorality and things. Things like that. We need to be careful about those things, okay? Uh, we need to be wise. We need to say, you know what? I need to really get serious in my Christian life, Okay. Uh, nowadays, it's it, you know you're gonna you're gonna be exposed to it. You have to learn to turn away from it. In regard to our own personal struggles, and in regard to Christ's church, and the Great Commission, and the discipling of the nations, there's no other goal that can be before our eyes in complete victory for the cause of Christ. How committed are you to that? How committed are you to being one of those that Christ says, "Well done, thou good and faithful servant." I know I have things I need to deal with and go to God about. You know, every, all of us do. Hope nobody here is living in open sin. I'm just saying we you know our daily struggles and stuff and our lack of zeal. We need to go to God. Jesus, it says in Matthew 28, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and upon earth. That's what our Lord Jesus Christ said before he ascended back to heaven. He told the apostles that. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and upon earth. Go, therefore, baptizing, excuse me, go, therefore, discipling, make disciples of all the nations. Remember, uh, God was told Abraham, and you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here Jesus tells us the disciple, the nations, all right? Uh, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep or to observe all things <coughs> whatsoever I have commanded you. Jesus didn't say, unless it gets hard, or unless people don't want to hear it. He said, go and make disciples. That's a command. These are imperatives. Go and make disciples, or teach, disciple the nations, all the nations, and then baptize them. You know, that's why we have household baptisms, because the, the ethno, ethnoi, the, the nations, have been brought under the gospel. And so we baptize individuals and their families. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and your family. 
teaching them to keep or observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And here's how we know the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled. Because Jesus said, and behold, I am with you all the days, literally, until the consummation of the age, okay, to the end of the end of the world or to the consummation of the age, till it's all, I'm going to be with you. That's why we know the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And that, that work will go forward by Christ having servants that obey him. In Psalm 110, it says, your people will be volunteers on, in the day of your power. So that's what we need to pray is that the Lord will work in our hearts and empower us. We need to go to Jesus and say, Lord, do this work. You did it in Smyrna. They listened. We see, you know, a generation later, we see Polycarp laying down his life. And by the way, in the, the book called The Martyrdom of Polycarp, the writer mentions there were many other martyrs. He said, don't get mentioned in this. He said, and he, named, he names a few names, so we don't know much about them. But there were many people laying down their lives. Today, in the culture that we have in the world, you got brothers and sisters that are being put to death for the cause of Christ. You know, martyrdom is not just something that was unique to the early church. The century that had the most martyrs was the 20th century. It wasn't the first or second or third century. Okay, Christians are being slaughtered all around the world because they won't be quiet because they love Jesus and they're trying to do what's right. Okay, all kinds of laws are being made against them. In India, they passed a law in some of the states that if someone converts to Christianity or if you're caught telling someone about Jesus with the idea of con converting them, they can put you in prison for 10 years uh, and you're considered then a criminal. Okay, those are ungodly laws. Christ will deal with that. We need to aim at what Christ has given us, and that's victory in Christ. He's already secured the victory. He didn't say, do all this so that I can have authority in heaven. He said, I already have it. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. He said in John 17 that the Father has given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as the Father had given him. How does he do that? Through Christians living faithful lives and witnessing to people, telling them there's hope. Jesus Christ is a Savior. And so we need to aim at that complete victory. And if you have an ear to hear, God's given you an ear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And the churches, that's us. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this section of your word. Help us to remember it. And we pray that by your Spirit, you would apply it to our lives and our hearts. Give us grace to truly repent of our sins and give ourselves to you, Lord. Bring this about in us. We can't do this in our own strength or power. So, Lord, we ask you to work in us by your Holy Spirit. Grant to us a renewed zeal. Grant to us healing, Lord. And give us grace, Lord, turning us from our sins and turning us fully to you. Help us, we pray, to be among those that you will say, Lord, um, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Pray you'd help us, Lord, in that and give us grace to really serve you and understand what's important. And we'll bless and praise your holy name, Lord. We'll give you all the glory for this. For you, Lord Jesus Christ, you are the Savior of your people. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, we thank you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.